it's neat when God speaks on a theme. He keeps uh, talking about things that we need to take to heart. And uh, just like we have to repeat ourselves, if you have children, sometimes you find you have to repeat yourself before something actually happens. Um, I see an occasional wry grin out there. Um, but God, he, he understands that we forget. And so he speaks to us. And he is unapproachable. He is an unapproachable God in his holiness. He's, he's up in heaven. He is a spirit that cannot be seen with our eyes. Uh, in the scripture, he's compared to a consuming fire. So if we are like chaff going into a consuming fire, it, they can't abide together. Um, David, he compared lightning to God's arrows. And you think a, a man's arrow, it's sharp and it sticks in a tree. Well, a bolt of lightning, he says, it just explodes the cedars. Like, totally different. Massive power, beyond comprehension. And you, you think of David, and he's, he's watching the storm roll in, and he's seeing the lightning. He's hearing the thunder. And, I mean, the sky just splitting. And in light of that revelation of power, he says in Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? In my house, we have a lot of different globes. We have many different fixtures. I'm sure, I don't know if everyone has this problem, but I have like a box that is filled with different kinds of globes and different kinds of sizes and, and uh, you know, styles, shapes for my car, for downlights, for floodlights, like everything. And uh, when they go out, the, the procedure is I go in the box, I find the right one. Make sure the switch is off because I know if I install the new globe, they get hot fast. I'll burn my fingers. So exchange the globe. Now, I did nothing to design that globe. I don't really know how it works exactly, except that if it's functioning, it will turn on. It will illuminate. And it's funny to me that I'm concerned about burning the tips of my fingers. But have you ever thought of the sun as being the work of God's fingers? He didn't have to keep the switch off and install the sun. Uh, no, he put it in place, burning hot. I mean, unapproachably hot. And he is greatly to be feared. He is a mighty God with wisdom and understanding and caused that sun to burn with enough heat. So it's been pretty hot lately, but enough heat to sustain life, to give light, and to provide all that we need on this earth. So it's like, yeah, the sun is the work of God's fingers. And he is powerful. He is mighty. And let's not imagine that out of our goodness or our wisdom, we found God, that we discovered him. It's he who's revealed himself to us. And let's not assume because he is patient and long-suffering that he has no backbone or he is soft on sin. If we're going to think twice before offending a king who's who holds our life in his hands, how much more God who has placed the sun in the heavens and has caused fire to burn eternally in hell. Uh, it's like he is an unapproachable God in one respect. The crazy thing is that God has revealed himself to us, that he has come in the person of Jesus Christ and he has sent his spirit to fill us. And we can have our chains broken and we can be brought out of the prison and we can walk in newness of life. These aren't just catchphrases or or clever things to say in a song, but it's a reality for those who love God and trust him. So that is a glorious truth. Um, and as we get into Isaiah 57, let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you've demonstrated your love through Jesus Christ, dying for our sins on the cross, and your power from raising him, through raising him from the dead. And we delight, Lord, in knowing you, that you would know us, that you would uh, concern yourself with us, that you would sacrifice or pay anything for us is beyond our understanding. So we praise you, Lord, and we thank you that you've allowed us to gather, that you've given us your word, that you've sent your spirit so we can know you, so that we can grow closer to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would do your work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been traveling through Isaiah. We're in chapter 57 today, and we'll jump right in. Verse 1, the righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. 
Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Now, we've been spending the last few weeks speaking about the Messiah when he comes. This is like a flashback to the people who are in captivity before they went into captivity. As you know, the Babylonians, God allowed them to destroy Jerusalem. Well, first Samaria, then Jerusalem to take his people captive. And while they were in captivity, God promised a savior, a redeemer, and that the temple would be rebuilt and it would be a house of prayer for all nations. And here, it's almost like a flashback in a movie when you get a little background, what brought them to this point, and that's what's happening here in chapter 57. There's no evidence after they came out of Babylon, that purified people, that they went back to the old idolatrous and pagan rituals of the land where they were sacrificing their children and there was the uh, fertility rituals and the things that they were doing. There's no evidence of that. So it's very, it's strong that this is referring to a time before. Now the Bible describes the time before the fall in Samaria and Jerusalem that the king, the priest, the Levite, and the people quite had had veered far from God, and they were all involved in idolatry. And you remember when Elijah, the prophet, was alive, he lamented, this is hundreds of years before, he lamented, man, I'm the only one left who's faithful to God. And God said, you know, I have 7,000 who have not bowed to Baal. They haven't dropped their knee to him. I have my people. But it seemed like everyone had gone after idols. Everyone was totally enslaved in these heathen practices, the same practices which caused God to drive out the the native people before Israel. So they had been punished for their sin. They had been driven out. And now God's people had fallen into the same trap. And in verse 1, when Elijah was alive, this verse was fulfilled. When a righteous man like Naboth or like those priests of God, they were killed for their righteousness and no one cared. People were like, ah, Maybe even good riddance. Like, oh, well, just we'll be done with them. And I think the same thing happens today. Now, even as the world was so corrupt with sin uh, that God destroyed it with a great flood to renew it, so Israel was corrupted, and the way to renewal was through purging of his people. So God would discipline them. He didn't discipline them to destroy them, but to restore them. And so he placed them in Babylon for 70 years, and he gave them, he said, hey, plant vineyards, live in homes, have a life, and I'm going to give you a a new life if you're loyal to me back in Israel. Now those who wanted, who were looking unto the Lord, it seems like the only way they were going to have peace was through their death. And that's a pretty hard thing to imagine, that the world would be so dark that it was just through their passing that they would have peace. Um... They wouldn't die from starvation. They wouldn't die from the plague. They would die in their beds. The prophet said, No one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. So God, he's completely consistent in his character in the Old and New Testament. He made a way for Noah and his house to be saved if they would go into the ark. Um, Lot and his family to be delivered from Sodom. Uh, Rahab and her whole house to be saved from the fall of Jericho. So God gives an opportunity for salvation. But on the other hand, God also allows people to perish. And a good example is the son of Jeroboam. King Jeroboam was a wicked king who established idolatry. And uh, the prophet said to his wife in 1 Kings 14, 13, and all Israel shall mourn for him, speaking of their young son, and bury him. He is the only one of Jeroboam who will come to the grave because in him is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Now that doesn't really make sense to me or to us. You think here's a good, here's a person who fears the Lord. There's something good in him towards God, but God will allow him to die because he'll be the only one who will actually come to peace. Everyone else won't even be buried They're going to die and be left in the street. That's their lot. And it's like, hmm, people say today, if someone's passed, that they've gone to a better place. Well, it also follows that they've gone from a worse place. And so that's what God had allowed. He allowed this 
um, for his purposes. And I don't understand all of God's ways. I don't understand why or how, but I know that he is good and his purposes will be accomplished through whatever he does. He's the one who's given us life. He's given liberty to all who believe. So verse 3, now he's addressing those who uh, were in idolatry. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? God had very strong words for people who forsook him and followed other gods. And he said, you're not sons of mine. You're the sons of who? The adulterer, the sorceress, the harlot. Children typically bear a resemblance. It may be strong or weak, but typically bear resemblance to one or both of their parents, physically. But God's saying, you bear no resemblance to me with your morality. You're completely different than me. You've done things that haven't even come into my mind to do. You have uh, found all sorts of wickedness. And God... um, He called them out on that, that they are not of his. And you see this even in the time of Christ, where the Pharisees and the religious rulers, they they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They sought uh, power and were greedy for money. And so Jesus said, you claim that Abram is your father, Abraham is your father, but you're of your father, the devil, who was a murderer and liar from the beginning. That's in John 8, 44. So he's saying, you say you're a son of Abraham, but you're living like a son of the devil, like a child of the devil. So if you're going to be born again, then our lives should reflect that change, right? There should be a change that's happened inside of us, not living according to the flesh, but by the Spirit. Now, before the fall of Jerusalem, the Jews, they claimed to follow God. Many were loyal to God, but there were some who mixed in these heathen practices with their worship of God, and they put... Uh, grain offerings and drink offerings on these smooth stones. And God said, those stones are your portion. You're hoping to get benefits from me, but those stones, that is your reward. Now, could could a smooth stone worn down by water and time cause flocks to breed or cause the rain to fall or the crops to grow? Of course not. The stone is really at the mercy of its environment. That's why it's been smoothed. It's just had the water run over it for a while, and it's become smooth. And he says, that is your future. That's really you. Unable to provide for yourselves, without power, at the mercy of a hammer or being dropped. You have no strength in yourself when you follow after idols. Not able to provide or to protect anything. God was the reason his people were strong and victorious. He was the one who gave them victory and caused them to be abundant in the land. And it came to a point where God said, I'm not going to even listen to your prayers. In Ezekiel 20, 31, he says, For when you offer your gifts and make your sons pass through the fire, you defile yourselves with all your idols, even to this day. So shall I be inquired of you, O house of Israel? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired by you. So God, though he's always accessible to us, he doesn't have to give us an audience with him when we choose a sinful lifestyle. Now, in the Proverbs, Solomon, he compares adultery with a fool who allows his precious water to just run through the streets. Uh, Because it's an arid climate, you would have vessels or cisterns that would hold the water. You'd have pots that would capture rainwater and the sediment would go to the bottom and you could drink the water. Now, to just allow your water to spill through the ground, it showed no foresight, no diligence. It was really wasteful. And your life depended on that water. Your herds and your flocks depended on that water. And so it would be silly. It would be suicide, really, to let your water run through the streets. So let me give you an example how we can relate this to us. Say you come over to my house. It's a hot day, and I offer you a drink of water. You're like, you know, that sounds pretty good. I am thirsty. Now, you would expect me to pull out a clean cup, 
to get water from a pure source like the tap or maybe a bottle out of the fridge or give you a bottle that's sealed of water, that's acceptable, right? You would you probably drink that unless it smelled like old ice or something and you'd be polite maybe for a minute or two. But um, Ice can just smell so bad sometimes. I've had that problem. Is it just me, smelly ice? Now, what if I offered you some water And instead of taking a clean glass, I just looked on the bench and there was a glass that used to have milk in it. It's kind of dry now. I'm like, ah, it's good. And, and, and I don't go to the tap. You see me go outside and there's the rain guttering and it flows down through a paddock where I keep pigs and goats. And on the bottom side of that, I get some of that water and I bring it up and offer it to you. Would you drink that water? Even if you're trying to be polite. You know, stinky water, ice water maybe, but would you drink that? No, you wouldn't. Because you're not going to drink water from an impure source if you're in some countries, even if the water looks clean. You're like, I'm not drinking that because it could make me sick, right? We have such discernment when it comes to our bodies. Do you think God is any less discerning when it comes to worship? Is he going to, is he going to receive worship from a polluted source? Is he going to partake of that when we bring it to him? But the vessel's not clean. The vessel's unclean. No. Makes perfect sense when it comes to us drinking. So let's compare that to worshiping God. God accepted the sacrifice of righteous Abel, but he refused the sacrifice of Cain because he knew that there was murder festering in his heart. That came out later, didn't it? They were in a field and he killed his brother. And that's why we need to be born again. That's why we need to walk in the way that pleases God. That's why we need to keep our vessels with honor, choosing to repent when we sin and choosing to do what pleases God because we can't serve two masters. We can't be in the dark and the light at the same time. We must become holy by being born again because God is. He's told his people, be holy because I'm holy. Not try to be holy. We could never be holy on our own. We need him to do it in us. Isaiah 57, verse 7. On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. This picture of spiritual idolatry, it's carried further. It's a grim picture. God's presence was in the temple. They were commanded under the law to bring the sacrifices to him. But instead, he says, you've inflamed yourself under every green tree. You're committing fornication there on those high mountains, you're offering sacrifices. God's word, it was to be written on the, on the doors and the gates of their homes, but instead, behind those doors in secret, they had set up remembrances, these uh, little shrines to false gods. And uh, he says, you're enlarging your bed to accommodate more lovers. You, you're looking for satisfaction in your life for things other than me. And to this bed, a, to this day, a bed is a private, personal place. Um, So important is this personal space that some people, married couples, have separate beds. There's a reason why people don't put their bed in the living room. They have it in the bedroom. It's a more private area. You would agree there's a huge difference between me me inviting you over to my house or me inviting you into my bed. Huge difference, right? There's... If someone says, hey, would you come into my bed? You're like, what? Like, I'm not talking to you anymore. Like, that would be a really strong statement. And so he's saying, you guys, you're enlarging your bed. And you're longing for those other beds, the beds where you've seen other people's nudity. You're seeking after all these lovers. And it's the phys- there was the physical aspect of that sin, but it was really a spiritual one. It was spiritual in origin, and it was carrying over into their physical lives. And the shame of it was that his people weren't ashamed of their sin. They were weary with the efforts to which they pursued it, 
but they weren't weary of it. You get what I'm saying? That's what he's saying here. You're wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say there is no hope. So they, they were, in a sense, you know, dressing themselves up, buying better perfume, uh, sending out messengers, I guess the, the manual, uh, manual sort of, uh, tender thing where they're saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm open for business and seeing who wanted to hook up and, and, uh, swiping right on everybody. You know, saying, yeah, oh, I'll, I'll go for anything. Who, any takers come into my bed. That's fine. I'm open. And that's how they were when it came to gods. Anything that caught their fancy, anything that seemed to satisfy, anything which seemed promising. I mean, they were, they were seeking uh, to be with other kings, it says. You, you brought more ointments. They were looking for uh, protection and security from other nations. And that was the issue. Their standards were so low, they were willing to go to hell for a good time. But don't be thrown off by the example here. In applying this situation to ourselves, because really, these are all written for our learning. You don't have to be struggling with uh, sexual fornication or lust or pornography for us to be in bed with something that is not God and that has stolen our affections, and that our desires are for this thing other than him. It may be lying or alcohol, worry, fear, gluttony, greed, selfishness, unbelief. The list is endless. There's an infinite amount of ways that we can choose other than God. And the problem is that we can be in bed with the thing. And as much as we hate how it makes us feel after we crave what it offers us because we're not discovering that in God. He is sufficient, is he not? He is the one who gives us satisfaction for our souls, but we can try to cover that up and be, actually become weary in the way and all the hoops we have to jump through, but we're not weary and seeing how hopeless it is to keep going down that path and how it's leading us away from God. God wants to bring us to a place of being helpless and utter hopelessness so that we can repent and find hope in him. He wants us to come to the end of dolling ourselves up or trying to make ourselves look good and just say, you know what? I am a wreck. My mind is ruined. My life is broken. I need transformation. I need salvation, and I'm desperate for it. There's nothing I can do to save myself. There's nothing I can do to satisfy myself, but I am going to seek the Lord because I have nothing else. See, we all have sin in common. That's one thing we all have in common. You have that in common with every person who walks this world. We are all broken. We all sin. And so this is for us. This is for me, and this is for you. Christ is the only one who can unite us in his love and forgiveness and new life. The life that you're thirsting for and hungering for, but you haven't found yet. Even after you come to Christ, you can go back. You can be turned aside to many ways. So let's, uh, let us come to, I pray that God brings you to that place where you're just not sick of how you feel, but you're Sick of sin. Isaiah 57, verse 11. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to your heart? It is not because I held my, is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up. Prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. When people are afraid, uh, they'll, they'll sometimes say anything to deflect blame or to avoid punishment. Even if it means lying and lies seem an easy way out, but they always ensnare us. It's an interesting uh, thing there. 
God is powerful, he is righteous, and people mistook his silence for approval of their current lifestyle. They uh, saw his patience as weakness because he was being patient with them. He was choosing to, to give them time to come to their senses, but they weren't coming to their senses, and they thought, God approves of everything I'm doing. I'm, me and God are on the same side. Well, uh, that's a pretty dicey thing when you think you're on God's side, but he's not on yours. See, God will be on whoever's side who's on his side. He wants to be on your side, but we have to go to his side. We can't say, hey, God, take my side. It's like when the guy asked Jesus, hey, hey, Jesus, tell him to divide the inheritance with me. And he says, man, who made me an arbiter over you? Beware of covetousness. Because life does not consist in the things that we have. Along the way, God, though God is mighty and holy, his people stopped fearing him. They ceased honoring him above all others. They were blind to all the idols they had accumulated. He says, hey, let your collection of idols save you. All those things you've gathered up for yourself that you, you love, that you trust more than me, let that help you. Well, they're not even good paperweights because even a little wind blows on them and they'll just blow away. They have no substance. They have no strength. I'm the one who's made you strong, not this stuff. Psalm 115.8, it says, Those who make them, speaking of idols, are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. And he had just given this big uh, example of they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. And he says, if you have an idol, you're just like that idol. You're as powerless as that thing. And those are our senses. We rely on those a lot, don't we, to get through life. Well, we need our spiritual senses to be keen and awake to be those watchmen that God's called us to be. So he says, those who trust self, those who trust those idols, you'll be like the chaff. The wind will just blow you away. There's no substance to them. And what I love about our God, though, is he doesn't just give bad news. He doesn't just stop there and say, all right, that's it. I'm done with you. He has hope for all who will repent and believe. He gives us the bad news first so that we might choose to do what's good instead and receive the promise. Verse 13, But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The idolaters are blown away. But those who trust in God, they will possess the land. They will live where God lives. They will be in his presence and they will inherit the place where God's presence dwelt. Now that is awesome, that we could inherit the place where God's presence is. That's why people go to Jerusalem, to be where the presence of God dwelt on Mount Moriah, just to be near that spot of old where God's presence dwelt and say, this is as close as we can get to God. But you know, he has come to us. He has revealed himself to us individually, personally, and he's come through Jesus. God has made a way for us to be forgiven and also delivered from all of our sinful excesses. Everything we can be delivered. All those chains that we, we sung about today, like, you know, he's taken off my chains. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can break that bondage. And a lot of times we don't see it as bondage. But God will show even this to you. And those who trust God, they will enter in. Because verse 14, it says, And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Now, in, the, in times when cities were overthrown and nations were destroyed, instead of just refurbishing, it was a common practice like in the tells, to to actually destroy everything, bring it down to rubble, and just build on top of it. You didn't want, you, in that way. You erased all prior claim to the land. You're putting your stamp of authority on it. You're saying this is. You, no one could come back and say, "Hey, that's my house." Well, your house is underneath, underneath the street where no one can even dig it up anymore. All memory of your uh, civilization is now wiped, and there is now a new civilization. They didn't bother with 
um, trying to renovate a stone to fix this. They just knocked it all down, built on top of it. They put their own stamp on it. And so here it says, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of my people. And so there were all, it was like all these obstacles were keeping people from God, all their idols, all their sins. It was just blocking them from God. And so instead of saying, okay, well, you, knew, you, you need to get your act together. You need to get rid of this. You need to change that. You need to do this and that. He says, no, heap it up. Instead of trying to fight to get rid of these obstacles, build up the level so that they're totally covered where digging's not allowed. So it's a highway. It's not a way through the shadows. It's not snaking through some valley somewhere. It's a, a visible, uh, illuminated path where you can just go straight to God. So make clear that way. Prepare the way. We know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so often we can be trying to remove these obstacles where God said, if you will trust me and believe me and obey, the way will be heaped up, the obstacles will be gone, and you can come right to my presence. No blockage. Nothing hindering you from getting to me and me having fellowship with you. Praise God for that. Jesus has come as a light to this world, and yet people stumbled over him in unbelief. He was rejected. And sometimes when he offers to help us, when he calls us, we can reject him too, as people that trust him and believe in him. There's no obstacles that remains between you and the presence of God, the all, except sin that we refuse to repent of. Then that will be an obstacle, and you'll never be able to overcome it. You can't climb over it. You can't skirt around it. There's no way. Because, like the idols, blind, deaf, without power or strength, we can't. So God has made a way. You don't need to work to try to heal your broken heart. God will heal that for you when you trust him. You don't try to have to try, I need to fix my mind. I need to change the way I think. You can try that forever, but you can't change yourself. We need God to change us. And he does that when we trust him and obey. Verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. So we find in this uh, passage, balm for the weary soul, food for hope-starved sinners. He says, I am the high God. I am the lofty one. You can't reach me on your own. But I dwell with him who has a heart that's contrite. The Jews understood that God was unapproachable. They didn't say that the Jews were very offended when Jesus said that God is my father because that made him equal with God, that, that someone could claim to a relationship with God. They knew that when they brought their sacrifice to the temple, there was a place where they could not go beyond. Only the priests or Levites could go. They could not go into the presence of God. And in fact, when both the tabernacle was dedicated and the temple it said the glory of God filled it to such an extent that the priests and Levites who had been sanctified to serve God, they ran outside. They were unable to stay in there because of God's glory. It was kind of like, um, they, I don't think they felt any physical pain, but they just could not stay in there. The glory of God was so powerful, it was like as if the, the building was engulfed with flames or it was tear gas, but they just could not stay in there. They had to get out because the glory of God had come in. Amazing. There's not one among us who can stare at the sun and not go blind. If you could stare at the sun in, when it's shining in its strength, well, that's just as easy. It, is it, it's, it's actually easier to do that than to stare at the sun and not go blind than to be in the presence of a holy God. Can't do it. Our eyes can't handle that kind of radiance. And our bodies 
cannot handle that kind of glory and power. God is unapproachable. But he says, he is the high, the exalted, the glorious God, the unapproachable one, he says, but I will dwell with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So God is going to lift the humble and bring down the proud. So he casts down the mighty, but he lifts up the contrite. Now, contrite, it's like it, the word means powder. It's to be crushed to powder. I don't know if times of your life have left you crushed to powder. Not just disappointed. It's like heartbroken beyond description. Crushed. Absolutely crushed. But this contrition, it's crushed at the revelation of a glorious God and the realization of our sin and inability to approach Him. That's the contrition. There's countless broken people in this world. There's, count, there's countless people who are disappointed with life. They're frustrated. But there's many people broken for the wrong reasons. It's a selfish reason. They're broken not because of their sin. They've been broken because they've refused to humble themselves. That's what breaks them. But God said that he will not contend with man forever. He's made our days on earth short. He's given us a small window of opportunity to respond to his offer, his invitation to be born again and to discover Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. I've heard people say, we need revival. It's in the church, like, oh, we need revival. We really need revival. You see what... what we're coming to. Revival comes for the one who says, I need revival and is contrite before God. We can be very concerned about everyone else getting revival. Like if we get something, we can all see it and be cool and amazing and we can be part of something. Well, do you want to be connected with God? Do you want to know the presence of God? Do you want to experience the kind of life that he has for you? Do you want revival? Are you willing to be contrite? Are you willing to be broken? It always comes down to me. When it comes to repentance, that's one of the very few me-first things. We have to say, me first. That's kind of rude, right? Like, you, we're two of us going to a door, and I'm like, hey, me first. And I'm pushing my way through, and you're like, God, oh, it's so rude. Well, when it comes to repentance, forgiving others, me first. When it comes to revival, me first. I can't just want revival for everyone. If you want revival, do you want it? <laughs> Are you willing to humble yourself? God can humble you, but it doesn't mean that you've humbled yourself. You have to decide to be humble. Because I can make fun of you, you can make fun of me, you can talk about my personal appearance and how my voice sounds, and you can try to cut me down and, and prank me and mock me, and it doesn't mean it's going to humble me, though. Just make me mad because I know you're right. No, but the thing is, God, when he humbles you, we need to choose to be humbled as well. That's something we cooperate with. We say, you know what? Yeah, I've been brought low, and it's because I have sinned. Not because God hates me. It's not because everyone's against me. It's because I am a wretch, and I am wicked through and through, and I am beyond hope. I am, I cannot help myself, and I am sick of fighting. I'm sick of talking about the power of God to save, and, 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 but it's theoretical. I don't know what it's like to be free. When you come to that point, when you're willing to humble yourself, God says, I want to spend time with you. You're the kind of person I want to dwell with. You're the one that I want with me forever. Verse 17, for the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. God's people weren't happy to serve one God. They wanted many gods. 
They weren't happy to follow his covenant, but tacked on the traditions of men and taught them as the commands of God. Their conduct deserved an immediate death sentence from God. But God was long-suffering and patient with them. He gave them opportunity to repent for hundreds of years to turn. He struck them with famine. He allowed a war to tear the land apart, that their houses would be burnt, the temple which they treasured to be torn down, their walls to be burnt with fire. He allowed all these things to happen so they might come to their senses and decide that these idols, they're bogus, they can't save, and he's the only one. He's the true God. It says that they kept on backsliding, going their own way. I like what Matthew Poole says. He says of God, Although I might justly destroy him and leave him to perish in his own ways, yet of my mere mercy and my own namesake, I will pity him and turn him for his sins and bring him out of his troubles. So it's amazing. These people don't want to change, but God's like, I'm going to heal him anyway. I'm going to bring him out of that. You notice that? Where it says, hey, I was angry. I hid myself from him. Like he wasn't answering their prayers. And then I have seen his ways. Were they good ways? No, they were bad ways. I have seen his ways and I will heal him. What hope, what grace there is for us there. Like I've seen, like you go, I've seen what you've done. And you're like, oh, that's bad. It's like, but I'm going to heal you. I will lead you also. I'm not just going to heal you and let you go your own way. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to lead you. And I'm going to restore comfort to you. So you won't be continually regretting wasted years and bad decisions. Those obstacles will be buried where no one can see them anymore. He'll put his sin, our sin as far from us as the east is from the west. And the power of sin over your life, that also is destroyed. God struck his people so they might come to him and be healed. That may seem strange, but that's really the way God's ordained. We're all born broken, and we have this opportunity to arrive at this conclusion, to humble ourselves before God say, I am broken. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I am I am beyond hope, beyond help, but not from God because he is awesome. Now, when I tore the ACL in my right knee, uh, because the pain persisted, I had a series of scans, and it showed that the ligament had been uh, 100% ruptured, so it was done. And the specialist said, well, you, can't, you don't have to do anything. You can live out your days with a limp. Uh, the problem is, because that ligament's no longer there, you're going to have arthritis in your knee. It's going to give you a lot of problems for the rest of your life. You should get it fixed, get it replaced. So I said, okay. So I chose the surgical option. I had to pay money to be sedated. Uh, I had to spend time to go uh, get the surgery done and to pay someone thousands of dollars to cut my knee open and to drill through my bones and to put a new ligament in there. And uh, it hurt a lot. And then there was physio that had to happen afterwards. It was like this big process. But I had to go through that to be healed, to be restored to where I can walk and have full function of my leg. So we understand that in a physical sense. Like, okay, it's going to require um, something invasive to fix something that can't fix itself. And we need something invasive on a spiritual level. We need to have our hearts changed. We need to have our minds changed because they're broken. Because we don't see our eyes. We don't see the world clearly. We don't even see God clearly. We don't understand the Bible when we read it. And so God's like, Will you admit that you can't see? Because then I can touch you and you will. Are you going to admit that you don't love people like me? Then I can change your heart and you'll love people like me. And just, it doesn't matter. Wherever you are, it doesn't matter if you're far, if you've been far for long. God, he speaks to us. It doesn't matter how far off or how near you feel to God. Often it's the ones farthest off who will receive it, and there's ones right on the doorstep who don't because they don't feel like they need him. God says, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far off, 
and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. That spiritual healing that God does of our hearts and of our minds is far greater than any physical healing you can ever have because it's an enduring one. So will you dare answer this question honestly? Are you at peace with God? Because that's what God gives, right? He says, peace, peace to him who's far off and him who is near. So from God, it's just peace. When Jesus appeared after his resurrection, what did he say? Peace unto you, when he appeared in the midst of his disciples. Jesus is our peace. But those who will not come to him will not experience his peace. He says, the wicked, they're like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. We're always shocked when we read of famous and rich and influential people who have are having a hard time, having a terrible life and just going through strife and, and killing themselves or having these great tragedies. And we go, how can that be? How can they be struggling when they have so much money? How could they be having marital difficulties when, when everything seems to be good for them, right? But it says, there is no peace for the wicked. If you don't have God, there's no peace there. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how things are going uh, in your business or, or the prospects of your future. Without God, there's nothing. There's no peace. There's no visibility. When, when the water is all, you know, there's a swell coming in, there's a storm, the visibility goes way down. You can't see hardly in front of your face because of all the sediment that's being churned up. And he says, that's your life apart from me. No vision, no clarity, without hope, no sense of direction. And your sen- you've now committed your sense of direction to someone who can't see. Really the blind leading the blind. So could you please turn to Acts 24 for our final passage Verse 24 through 26. I just heartily encourage you to consider that. Are you at peace with God? Are you experiencing that peace? The scripture says that Jesus is our peace and he's broken down that middle wall of separation that was caused by sin. And if we are choosing to remain in sin, God won't allow you to have peace there. Uh, and he will convict you, and he will chasten you, just as a man, the son in whom he delights. Acts 24, 24 through 26. Read about Felix. Paul was brought before him. It says, After some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Now, Felix is an example of someone who'd heard the truth, but it didn't change him. He had a wife who was Jewish. She understood a lot of the the Torah and the things uh, of that nation and the religion there. And now he heard about the gospel. So he's had the whole message, right? He's, he's heard a bit of the Old Testament. Paul, no stranger to the Old Testament, being a Pharisee. And now he brings forth the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And he starts talking to him about Jesus. And look at the things he reasons about. Now, this is a good thing to think about when you're sharing the gospel with someone. Is this the direction you go? Where he's talking about righteousness, Like, how do we measure up according to the law? Self-control. How does your life actually look? And judgment to come. And it said, Felix, he trembled. He trembled, I believe, because he believed in God. He believed there was a God. He he had many gods probably in his life. And he's like, whoa, if that's the case, then there could be trouble for me. But instead of humbling himself and being contrite, he says, he trembled. Go, Go away. When it's convenient, I'll call for you. Now, you might think on the outside that Felix is a pretty devout guy. He wants to talk about God, and often. Right? He's calling Paul before. It says more and more he brought him, but it wasn't about God or the gospel. It said he wanted money. He was hoping that Paul would give him money, and then he could let him go. 
That was his rationale for bringing Paul. He was right on the doorstep. He is close. He was exposed to the truth, but it didn't change him because he wasn't broken for his sin. He understood he was a sinner, but he didn't repent. And he kept walking in his creed, right? He still had greed. And it was on display every time he called Paul before him. So this awesome, unapproachable God, he has come to us and he says, I'll, you can dwell with me if you'll humble yourself. If we'll be contrite. And God's made his presence available to us now through the Holy Spirit, who will take up residence in us when we repent and trust in him, when we believe on Jesus, who has died and risen for our sins, when we confess him as Lord. There's, there doesn't need to be one single obstacle between you and God today. Not one. He'll say, heap it up, heap it up, make the way plain, make it clear. Do you want to be on that highway, that highway of holiness? Are you willing to have God clear away those obstacles so that you might know him and abide with him? That's what he offers you today. May we be contrite. May we realize that we need healing. We are broken. We, we, need, we need fixing. We can't do ourselves. And he is able. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your word that even among words of rebuke for idolatry, we have words of peace and comfort for us to lay hold of. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't uh, stop short of the grace of God, that we wouldn't frustrate your grace, Lord. We wouldn't resist the move of your spirit. And Lord, please show us when there are things that are, they have become idols in our lives, they have our affections, they have our interest, and they're not of you, and they, they take us from you. Lord, open our eyes to the obstacles and that the fact that we cannot overcome them on our own. And I pray we would be weary, not just of the way, but of the sin, so that we might be restored to fellowship with you. So I pray, Lord, for your spirit to be poured out upon us, that we would have clean hands and pure hearts and offer up worship that's acceptable before you. Lord, we want to be as able whose sacrifice was acceptable. Make us those living sacrifices, Lord, for this is our reasonable service to such a great God who loves us and has given everything for us. In Jesus' name, amen.